One of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus uh, comes early on in his ministry. He had gone into the wilderness after being baptized at the Jordan River for 40 days of temptation and came out of the wilderness preaching. He went to his home synagogue in Nazareth first and gave a Bible study out of the book of Isaiah that they really didn't like. They actually tried to kill him. Uh, And then uh, he left their midst, and then he went up to the northern region of Israel into a, a, a region called the Galilee. And there in the city of Capernaum, he began to preach, and he began to work Uh, miraculously, and he began to cast out demons. And his whole life, his whole ministry became very public in that moment. Uh, There came a time there in the midst of this increased popularity that in Capernaum, uh, there was a moment where Jesus was teaching in a house that was so crowded that no one could even, not even one more person could fit inside of it. And this is the story that I love so much. And there was a man who was paralyzed in the town, and some friends of his, the Bible actually doesn't call them friends, they might just have been men who wanted to see another miracle, and so they found a paralyzed guy, and they brought this man on his bed to Jesus. Uh, They couldn't get into the home because it was so crowded, and so they went to the rooftop of this house. Those the homes in, those er- in, in that era and in that area were made of earth and uh, the dirt of the ground, mud and all of that. And they began to break apart the roof to lower this man to Jesus. And uh, you can imagine the disruption. I mean, if right now in our Bible study, we were sitting here and the roof started to shake and, you know, all of a sudden somebody's getting lowered down from the roof, I, I don't think that you guys would be listening to me anymore. You know, we'd all be looking up and all of that. And this interesting thing is stated by all the gospel writers who recount this story. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven you. It became a big hubbub because the religious leaders were there and they said, this guy's blaspheming, he can't forgive anybody's sins. And then Jesus said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say unto you, man, rise up and walk. And the guy got up. It was a proof that Jesus could deal not with just the secondary issues like physical sickness, but that he could deal with the primary issue of sin which separates us from God, that he could forgive it. But, I, but the point that I want to bring out to you this morning is that Jesus saw their faith. It wasn't that he was looking at the faith of the man on the stretcher, but he saw the faith of the individuals who brought the man to Christ. And here in the passage in front of us today, I hope that you can see that there are people in the life of David who God is going to use to protect David, to help David, if you will, to bring David to the Lord. And my hope and my prayer is that as we go through this text and as we see God protecting David through other people, that you might capture a greater value of the people in your life that God wants to use to help point you to Jesus, and also that you would increasingly Become a person who brings the people in your life to the Lord. That you would want to see them not only saved, but continually repointed to the Lord. In this passage, we're going to see, first of all, 
a friend brought into David's life. We saw him a couple of weeks ago. We'll see him again next week. A very good friend to David, the son of Saul, a man named Jonathan. And this will be a friend that God will use to point David to the Lord to, to bring protection into David's life. And then we're going to see in a second episode, uh, his wife, the daughter of Saul, a woman named Michael, she is going to uh, intercede for David. She's going to protect David. And then lastly, David is going to run to the prophet, a man named Samuel, and Samuel is going to offer through the Spirit of God and the Word of God protection for David. And so I'm hopeful today that as we think about each one of these categories, that we'll realize that God so often wants to bring friends into our lives, sometimes even spouses into our lives, and at all times, spiritual leaders into our lives who can help protect us from error can, and it can help protect us from temptation. All right? So that's my, my hope today that we would not only see the need for that, but that we would want to be that as well. That we'd want to be good friends and good spouses, if that's a calling that God has upon our lives, and that we'd want to be good spiritual leaders in the lives of other people. Now, I should say at the outset of all this, let me ask you this question Are there terrible examples? Of all three of those, those categories, is there such a thing even in Christ as a terrible friend, <laughs> as a terrible spouse, and as a terrible spiritual leader? All of those exist. Even some who name the name of Christ, yet pointing you away from the Lord and His Word. Yet bringing you into lethargy or into kind of coasting in your faith or leading you into error. So, you know, what we're wanting, of course, are the good versions of all of these things uh, in our lives as, as we look at this story in the life of David. So let's look at the first episode uh, found in the first uh, seven uh, verses. It says, And Saul, verse 1, spoke to Jonathan his son and all his servants that they should kill David. <clears throat> all right, now, so Saul again rises up. He wants to take David's life. This is not the first time. We remember back in chapter 18, twice he tried to throw a spear at David when the distressing spirit from the Lord was upon Saul. And so now he wants to kill David again. And the basic reason that he wants to kill David is because of envy or jealousy. David killed Goliath and Saul is jealous and envious of the fame and the glory and the reception that David is having now in Israel. But it's, wouldn't you say it's beyond envy? It's not just envy, it's also resistance against God's clear and determined plan for Saul and David and all of Israel. God has said to Saul, you are not going to be seated on the throne and neither are your family members after you die. There's going to be a new man who is like me, God-hearted, he's pursuing me, he desires me, and, and now it's very clear who God has chosen. God's chosen David, he's not chosen Saul so Saul is not only envious, but he's also resisting God's clear will and plan. But Jonathan, verse 1, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything... I will tell you, All right? So Jonathan makes this deal with David. He's like, hey, go hide, and I'll go intercede for you, and I'm going to see what my dad says. 
And Jonathan, verse 4, spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. You know, he's like, Dad, remember you were happy about it for a little while. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul, verse 6, listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. All right, now, even in modern times, it's not hard for us to find uh, tyrants who are leaders who make promises that they're clearly not going to keep. And you guys know the story of Saul. This is like a momentary thing in Saul's life. He's like, here's a treaty. I'm going to be at peace with David. He will not die, and it's going to last all of five seconds. But, you know, Jonathan hears it, and he wants to believe the best about his dad. And so Jonathan, verse 7, called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And so in this first episode of chapter 19, what we see is this friend of David, this man named Jonathan, the son of Saul, uh, he intercedes for David and protects David. He's an instrument that God is going to use to bring protection in David's life. We might cry out to the Lord and say, God, protect me. God, deliver me. God, set your hand upon me. And he might give to you a friend like Jonathan, who will be the instrument that God seeks to use to bring that protection or that uh, covering into your life. Now, like I said, two weeks ago, we saw an introduction to Jonathan, and I talked for a little while about him. And next week in chapter 20, we're going to see Jonathan again. So I don't want to belabor the point about Jonathan, and I don't want to be redundant about Jonathan and over and over and over again say, Jonathan was a good friend, we need good friends, and you guys start getting tired of me telling you that we need to have good friends. But, but let me point out to you two very protective elements of Jonathan's friendship from this moment in David's life. First of all, notice that Jonathan told the truth, both to David, because he came to David, he said, my Saul has put a hit on you. He's told his servants to kill you. This, that's his dad. That's his own father. So he goes to David and he outs his own father to David. But not only does he tell the truth to David, notice that he goes back to Saul and he tells the truth to Saul. He's like, look, David took his life into his own hands and he went out and slayed the Philistine and you, you used to be happy about it. What happened to you? What's wrong with you? You should be singing like everybody else about this guy, but instead something has happened to you that has changed your demeanor. Jonathan was a good friend to David, partly because he told the truth even when it was costly in his own life. He was willing to say the truth. He endangered himself and denied his own father in order to speak the truth. And we must have in Christ friends who are willing to speak the truth of God and his word to us at all costs. There's this little phrase from Romans chapter 12 that I love so much. It's, it's this sentence. It's actually two sentences in the way that we record it. Paul says, let love be genuine. And then immediately after that, he says, abhor 
what is evil, hold fast to what is good. You know, if we were writing this in our modern time, we would probably say, let love be genuine, and then we might follow it up with something like, so just approve everything, just accept everything, and don't make it ever awkward by confronting everything that might be out of line in the life of one of your believing godly friends. Just kind of let it roll. Just kind of let it happen. But Paul says, no, let love be genuine and abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In other words, a disingenuous love accepts and embraces evil. But a genuine love, Paul says, is a love that when it is confronted with evil... It does not uh, approve it, but it wants to instead hold fast to the opposite of that evil. It wants to hold fast to what is good. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 6. Listen to this with me. Pay attention to this. He said, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So there are times in our lives as believers when those who are spiritual in their friendship with others should restore those who have slipped into carnality in their lives. So this is part of what it means to have real, true Christian friendship and fellowship in the body of Christ. When they list out the top reasons that Christians make a decision not to come to church and not to gather together with other believers, there's a lot of different things on the list. I mean, it's, it's, you wouldn't believe it if I, if I told you it. I mean, some of the reasons are things like the parking was not good enough or something like that. You know, I mean, the, the list is pretty wild. But one of the reasons that is mentioned is I feel judged. Now, I know that there are very judgmental churches on the face of the earth. I'm sure there are places where when you walk in and you're not dressed right, or you don't look right, or you don't look clean and crisp and like you were born and living in the 50s, (laughs) that it is a judgmental kind of environment. I'm sure that that exists. But I'm also certain that there are times where the reason that it feels that way is because the Holy Spirit is trying to convict you of something. And it's not a feeling of judgment that is coming from other people upon your life. It's that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you of some kind of sin that you have willfully decided to persist in, that when you get together in the presence of the saints and sing songs to the living God and His Holy Word is opened, it makes you feel uncomfortable, and it should. He doesn't want you to be comfortable living in that place of sin. So sometimes the best friends that we could have in life are those friends that are willing to be honest with us, open up the Word of God to us, say, hey, look, that, that way that you're living, that thing that you're doing, that is out of bounds. That is not fitting of a life of a believer. I'm sure when Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 4 and told us to be imitators of God, therefore be imitators of God, you've got to, I mean, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's what he says there. There might have been some in Ephesus who said, man, that sound, that's, a little, that's a little harsh, Paul. 
It's a little too much, but, but Paul is looking and he's saying, look, there is this God who sent his son to die on the cross for your sin. He purchased you with the blood of his own son. Why would you trample the blood of the son underfoot by choosing to live in rebellion against this God who you say is your savior? That's a good friend. Can I get an amen this morning? All right, so we've got to have friends who will tell us the truth at all costs. And notice that Jonathan, in the process of doing this, what did he do? He brought David back into the place that he belonged. This is what good, godly friends will do in your life. They will bring you back to the place that you should be. They'll say to you, go back to your wife. Come on, man. Go back to your wife. They'll say to you, hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in fellowship. I haven't seen you in church. I haven't seen you at small group. I haven't seen you for a long time. Where have you been? They'll say to you, no, you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to make that decision. You, you'll make some, you've got some choice to get yourself into some kind of major financial debt to just kind of please the self with some new possession. And they'll say to you, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Friends will bring you back into right thinking. And so Jonathan was bringing David back into that right place. Now in all of these elements, like I said, there are terrible examples of these and there are good examples of these. And then if I could say it this way, there is the best example of these. And the best example of all of these is Jesus. He is the best friend that you could ever have. He is the best friend that you could ever have. He said in John chapter 15, verse 5, to his disciples, he said, No longer do I call you servants. We might call ourselves servants of Jesus, but he says to them, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. He looks at you, if you're his child, if you've believed in him, he looks at you and he says, you are my friend. And Jesus, he is a great friend. I can't tell you how many times my friend Jesus has told me things that I just needed to hear. When I've opened up my Bible and started reading the book of Genesis, and I start learning that He made me in His image, man, that is a word from a friend. When I open up the book of Joshua and, I, and He says to me, this Christian life, this spiritual journey you're on, it is a fight and it is a war. You're either moving forward or you're going to lose. You've got to keep moving forward. That is a word from a friend. Or when I've turned to the book of Job and I've seen this man going through trials and difficulties yet holding on to his faith before God, my friend Jesus speaks into my heart and says, I'm with you in the midst of your trials. I'm with you in the midst of your difficulties. Hold fast to your integrity when I read the prayers of the Psalms and I hear them crying out to the Lord, my friend Jesus says, you're allowed to pray like that. And when I read the prophet Hosea, who God, as he spoke through this prophet, declared that the people of Israel's faithfulness was like a morning cloud that dissipated so quickly the moment the sun came out or the morning dew that began to dry up the second that the sun began to to heat up the earth. My friend Jesus says to me, I want to give you and your life a faithfulness that is stronger than that, that lasts longer than that, and I can do that by my Spirit. Or when I turn to the Gospels and I read of the teaching 
that comes from his mouth. And he tells me, like a friend, he says, you need to love God above everything and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Or when I read the book of Revelation and my friend Jesus gives me hope, my father is on the throne and all of this is going to consummate, going to come to a full closure of what, of what my father is doing here on earth. That it, those are the words of a friend. And so Jesus is a greater friend. And you might be here today and you might be saying, man, you keep talking about Jonathan and David and all these, these guys with their great friends and I don't have friends. And I realize there's a good chance a lot of the men in this room, you probably don't, a lot of you guys don't have good friends. But, and, and I want to encourage you to pursue godly, Christ-like men to have them in your life. But I also want to encourage you, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so Jesus is that better friend. Now let's, let's move on in our story to see the second episode. It says in verse 8, and there was war again. Now, now, by this time, we know who the war is with, right? It's the Philistines. They're surrounding Israel. So it says, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Now, now by this time, I, I hope that by this time in 1 Samuel, when you read that David went out and struck the Philistines with a great blow, I hope that you're saying, Oh no, this means... Saul's about to go crazy, you know, because anytime David has a victory, Saul tends to get a little paranoid. So let's continue reading and see what happens. Verse nine, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the liar. I mean, you are just a paranoid person if you're just walking around with your weapon in your hand all the time. He just has his spear. He's like, where's my spear? i got to have my spear with me. Just in case, I want to kill somebody. And David was playing the liar. And Saul, verse 10, sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul, verse 11, sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. So this is very treacherous. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And they sent messengers to take David, she said, and when they sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul, verse 15, sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, verse 17, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy, that's what, what David, that's what Saul called David at this point, my enemy, you know, the fictitious kind. Uh, <laughs> David was not his enemy at all, but that's how Saul felt. So he says, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now this is a fascinating and humorous little episode in the life of David, right? I mean, uh, here he goes out into victory against the Philistines, 
And he wins a great battle, and so Saul becomes jealous and envious once again. This harmful spirit reappears, and so David is called. He's playing the harp or the lyre before uh, Saul. And Saul's spirit is not calmed down through this music any longer. And so he takes his spear, and he thinks to himself, it actually says it in the text, I will pin David to the wall. And so he pulls out his spear, he throws it at David, but David evades Saul, gets away from his, this is his father-in-law, all right? So you think your Thanksgiving is awkward. (laughs) This This is what David is going through. He evades Saul, he goes to his home. He thinks he's safe, you know, like Saul's crazy, hopefully he's calmed down, but Saul plots to take David's life, and so he sends messengers or assassins to lie in wait for David for the morning time. And Michael gets wind of it. She gets wind of it, and so she tells David, you better flee tonight. You've got to run for your life tonight. And so she lets him out. She provides a way of escape for him. And then she does this very clever little thing. She takes an image. It might even be the word for a household idol, And she takes it and she puts it in the bed and she puts some goat's hair on top of it and she puts David's clothes in there and she makes it look like David is lying there sleeping. You all did this when you were kids, right? There were moments where you had to trick your parents so you put made a little image of yourself there in the bed like I'm fast asleep, you know, kind of thing. And so then Saul, you know, he sends the messengers And they say, you know, give us David. And she says, oh, he's lying in the bed sick. And I don't understand this part of the story, but the the messengers or the assassins, you know, they're like, oh, well, he's sick. (laughs) Can't kill him well. He's got the flu, you know. And so they go back to Saul and they're like, he's sick. And so Saul says, well, then just bring him to me in the bed. I mean, how evil is this guy? Just bring him to me in the bed. So they go back, and when they uncover you know, what they think is David, they realize what Michael has done. And then Saul goes to her and says, why have you deceived me like this? Why have you protected my enemy? And she makes a cover of it. You know, she protects herself. She says, well, he said, why should I kill you? Let me go. And so you know, he threatened me, and so I let him go. At this moment in David's life, I mean, you... you You have to really imagine this as a very true and real event that unfolded in his life. I mean, it's so ridiculous that it's humorous to us, but this man actually lived this out. He walked it out in this moment where he went home from his job and his father-in-law slash boss had just tried to literally kill him. And he's there trying to digest that, trying to process that, trying to figure out what does this mean? God has anointed me. The prophet said I'd be the next king in Israel. What does all this mean? And just as he's getting ready to retire for the night, his wife comes to him and says, I've received intel. My father actually has messengers that are here to either kill you or arrest you and take you to him so that you might die. You've got to flee for your life tonight. And he does. He, he climbs out, he goes out, and he runs for his life. And he is actually literally living this out. He's alone. He's by himself. And it's in this moment that David actually penned a psalm, a prayer, 
about this event. Psalm 59 is the psalm that David would sing in this moment. And Psalm 59, in that psalm, he says, My enemies, they are lying in wait for me. But over and over again, David says to God in that psalm, he says, I'll wait for you and I'll watch for you because you will protect me. And I just wanted to draw that out because all throughout this chapter, though Jonathan and Michael and Samuel will offer protection to David, ultimately it's the Lord who is protecting David because David has run to the Lord. And in this moment, he's crying out to God. He's saying, God, would you watch over me? God, would you protect me? God, would you defend me? All right, so let's think about the protection that God offered to David in this second episode, this second movement. He offered David the protection of his wife, Michael. You know, a lot of people have really negative things to say about Michael, and she does have moments in her life where you kind of wonder where she was at with the Lord. Some people make a big deal about the fact that there was a household idol or image so nearby for Michael that maybe she had a little bit of an idolatrous thing happening in her life. And later on in David's life, when they were both older and reunited again in marriage, she mocked David for his zeal for the Lord when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel. So maybe she wasn't as spiritual as she could be, but God used her at this moment in David's life to be a blessing in David's life to offer protection in David's life and I realize and of course we must confess that not every believer in the body of Christ is called to be married there are going to be plenty of believers in Christ who are unmarried who are even called into a single life or perhaps chose it because they could not find an equal yoke uh, someone who shared that same passion and zeal for the Lord in their lives. And we have to cr- make sure that we create and maintain an environment in the body of Christ where that is an acceptable outcome and an acceptable reality in a person's life, lest we become a body of believers who's pressuring everybody to get married and forcing people to pursue marriages that they probably should not enter into. But the reality is, is that many believers will become married. And there are times where the Lord wants to bless you with a spouse who will be the instrument that God uses in your life to offer you protection. And Michael did this in David's life by, get this, telling David things that only she could know. Now, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, just think about it. She somehow, as the daughter of Saul, as the princess there in Israel, somebody told her that there, these messengers were there. Somebody was a friend to Michael. Somebody from the household of Saul let it leak or let it slip that these messengers are there. She had access to information that only she knew that even David himself could not know. But I can't help but say that this is a reality so often inside of a good and godly Christian marriage. You see, way back in Genesis chapter 2, in learning of the first marriage, what we discover is that there was this man named Adam who was completely and entirely alone. And up until that point in the book of Genesis, everything that God saw, it says God saw it and said it is good. But the first thing that God saw that he said was not good is he he looked at Adam and he said, it is not good that man should be alone. But I will make a helper comparable to him. And he put Adam to sleep and from his side, he took a piece of Adam and formed from that piece of Adam, 
his bride, this woman. And Adam woke up and he said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she will be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God records and God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The reason I'm telling that story is because when Adam awoke, what he realized is that he was not as whole as he used to be. That something had been removed from him and it was in her. And that as they came together, he says, you're bone of my bone and you're flesh of my flesh. You came out of me. And there was this sense within him where he says, I'm not complete without you. Not this syrupy, sappy, you know, kind of you complete me, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but this thing where he realized, like, I'm, I'm not everything that I could be until you came back into my life. And so the two, God said, become one flesh. And it's because of that, it's because of that reality that so often the spouse that God gives to you, they will be able to, because they, in a sense, complete that oneness, make you one, they are able to show you a complementary side to things. I can't tell you the amount of times that Christina's faith in, in the Lord has motivated my faith. You know, in, in a good and godly and healthy Christian marriage, it should be like a spiral where you as, you, as one encourages the other and the other encourages the other, it is a spiral where you are climbing into a deeper Christ-likeness. Unfortunately, we all know of marriages that it's not like that. It's, it's a downward spiral. Or it's a stagnated circle that just remains in the same place where bad priorities or bad decision-making is only reinforced in that unit. But it is good for us to live inside of marriages where we motivate and we stir one another up to love and good works, where we grow stronger and stronger as a result of the other. If you are married here today, your marriage in Christ is not designed to help you pursue cruise control in your Christianity. No, your marriage... Apparently, the Lord looked at you and said, you're not as holy as I want you to be. And so I'm going to bring a spouse into your life that helps promote that holiness in your life, that helps drive you to your knees, that helps drive you further and further into a deeper Christ-likeness. And I can't tell you how many times I've been wrestling with something, I've been thinking about something, and Christina has just known. She's just seen it. She's just observed it and been able to say something that no friend, no pastor, no one else could ever say because of the oneness that we share together. She is complementary to me, and so there's the ability to speak into my life in that kind of way. And so Michael provided that for David. Not only did she do that, but she provided David a way of escape. She let David out of the window. And in a godly Christian marriage, your spouse can be a way of God's protection coming into your life by giving you a way of escape. Sometimes that escape will, will be spiritual. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a young man who is battling carnality say to himself, 
man, I want, to, I want to have what you have. I want to have what I see other men who are godly and that I look up to have in their lives. Therefore, I'm going to pursue the Lord and become spiritual so that I could actually get a wife who is spiritual. And, and that relationship has then driven them into deeper spirituality. You see, uh, Michael provided a way of escape, and sometimes your spouse will provide you that spiritual escape. Sometimes your spouse will provide you just simply emotional escape. Amen? I mean, life is hard. Life is painful. Life is difficult. And sometimes you just need to laugh with somebody. You just need to relax with somebody. You just need to enjoy life with somebody. And sometimes the Lord will provide a spouse in your life for that same thing. Laughter and joy and fun. Christina and I, yesterday, we were laughing about something. We were crying. We were laughing so hard. And you know, it's, it's like all of those like hormones are being released as you're laughing and you're crying because you're laughing so hard at something. At the end, you know what it's like? You know, you're like, <sighs> that felt good. <laughs> I felt good. I felt good just to laugh in that kind of way. And then, I, I don't think I would even say this if it weren't in a pronounced way taught in Scripture and taught in the Bible. But sometimes a spouse will provide you a way of escape, not just spiritually and emotionally, but also sexually. And the reason I say this is because in the middle of a passage where Paul urged the Corinthian church to consider, if they were single, to embrace, like he had, a life of singleness, in the middle of all that, he said, however, because of sexual immorality, because that temptation is so strong, it's good for some of you to marry, that you would be able to enjoy your spouse in a sexual kind of way, lest you commit sin with your body by enjoying someone sexually without marrying them. And so there are, there, that is a way of escape from a very common temptation in life. So yeah, I just went there, but that's what God's Word teaches us. Alright, so now in all of this, like I've been saying, Jesus is the better version of all of these. So he's the better friend, but he's also the better spouse. The Bible teaches all throughout the New Testament that Jesus is a husband to his church. He is the one who ultimately we can feel complete oneness with, satisfied with, and enjoy. All right, let's look at our last and final episode in verse 18 to 24, this is where it really gets wild. It says, Now David fled, verse 18, and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he, said, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. Then Saul sent messengers, verse 20, to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So these guys, they come to arrest David, and all of a sudden the Spirit makes them prophesy. Some people translate this spiritual ecstasy, that they, they're, they're trying to do something bad, and God just overrides them for a moment. And when it was told Saul, verse 21, he sent other messengers, and they, when they got there, they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. So now there's a threefold witness that God does not want David to be dead. Then, verse 22, he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, 
Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked. Don't get too crazy with this it probably just means that he took off his kingly garments and he still had his first layer of clothing on but you never know this is a wild story but that's probably what it means and so he lay there all day and all that night offering these prophetic utterances thus it is said at the end of verse 24 is Saul also among the prophets this was the second time that they actually said this about Saul at the beginning of his reign 20 years earlier there was this moment that he'd gone out after samuel had said you're going to be the king and the spirit came upon him and he began to prophesy and they said is saul also among the prophets it became a proverb and what that proverb meant way back then was man saul even saul is prophesying these days this is crazy but by but now this at this moment the proverb took a new meaning and it began to mean a Don't believe every prophet you hear because even Saul prophesied sometimes. (laughs) Okay, that's what it came to mean. All right, let me just close by pointing you to this. David, in this moment of fear and in need of protection, who does he run to? He runs to Samuel. Samuel was a prophet of God. And one of the ways that the Lord wants to protect you is a way in which the Lord protected David here with spiritual leadership in your life. Samuel was a prophet who could authoritatively declare God's word to David. That was really what Samuel was all about. He was a word-based man at the beginning of his life when God first started to work with him when he was just a child, just a boy, it says in 1 Samuel 3 and in 1 Samuel 4 that none of the words that came out of Samuel's mouth fell to the ground. And that the word of the Lord was spoken through the word of Samuel and it spread throughout all of Israel. So David has come here to Samuel, to this prophet of prophets, who will protect his life. And the Spirit of God backs Samuel up, and David is protected in this miraculous, powerful kind of way. God desires to protect you in a similar way, I believe, with spiritual leadership who is able to authoritatively declare God's Word to you. I realize that this can sound self-serving because that's exactly what I'm attempting to do for you right now, to authoritatively stand on the authority of God's Word and declare his word to you. But let me run a list of cross-references to you just real quickly. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. God gave to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Galatians 6, verse 6. Paul told the, Galatian, the church in Galatia, he said, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Timothy 4.13, speaking to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Paul told him, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Then later in that same epistle, 1 Timothy 5.17, he said, let all 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And in Hebrews 13, verse 7, the writer said, Remember your leaders, those who spoke spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And even more strongly, 10 verses later, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, he writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God wants to help you and protect you in part by giving to you in your life spiritual leadership who will authoritatively declare God's word into your life. The reality, of course, is that there are plenty of spiritual leaders who will not do that. Uh, Even this last week, there was a church, I think back east in New Jersey, that celebrated and had a ceremony or a service where they celebrated the long transitioning process of one of their pastors from being female into now being male. They're referring to themselves as a spiritual leader for God's people. But I assure you that is not a church. It may be called that. It may have a building and sing songs and even read some scriptures. But that is not the body of Christ. That is error. So the reality is is that there are all different types of error. And there is no human being on earth that is going to speak with 100% accuracy at all moments in time. That's impossible unless all you do is stand up and just read the Bible. Once you begin to say other things, there will be moments where you might not even be getting it wrong, but your emphasis might be a little too strong or something like that. However, we should look for and desire uh, ministries and teachers that are willing to declare the Word of God, and treat it as it is, the authoritative, all-inspired Word of God. So, we need that. Look, the reality, though, is that there are times where believers cannot find that, and what you need to understand in those moments is that Jesus is better than any apostle, prophet, evangelist, or shepherd teacher. He is the chief shepherd the chief pastor, the senior pastor, and when we have peers, we'll be like, oh, thank you. Pastor Jesus, he's here. <laughs> you know, the, the, the overseer of our souls. He is that better spiritual leader. And I, I've got friends all over the world, and there are, there are some parts of the world where it's just impossible to find a church that will faithfully hold up and, and represent the Word of God. And in those moments, believers have to gather together and they open their Bibles and they read their Bibles together and they just pray and they go to the Lord. But, you know, because the churches that they've gone to are run by the state or just an abomination and they just can't, you know, be engaged with them. And so Jesus here, he he wants to protect us with authoritative biblical leadership in our lives, but he is the better version of all these things, the better friend, the better spouse, and the better leader. So let's close in prayer, and let's ask the Lord to protect us and our lives in ways just like this. Lord, we come to you, and we need this. We ask for this. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, as your people. 
with friends and help us to be friends, Lord, who will point people to Christ, who will say the things that only friends can say in ways that only friends can say them, but that will help us grow. Lord, we pray for the marriages here at Calvary, both those that exist now and those in the future. We pray, Lord, that they would be standing upon the rock of your word. We pray, Lord, that they would be helpful, not hurtful, that they would be godly, not carnal. And Lord, we pray that there would be spiritual transformation that exists. And Father, for every person that's here today that is in an unequal yoke, whether their spouse is an unbeliever or their spouse is operating in carnality and rebellion against you, Lord, we pray that you'd encourage their faith and that you'd stand with them and be for them the spouse that they are not receiving even in their own home. And Lord, we pray that you would bless this planet with many more people. You told us to pray for laborers for the harvest. Lord, men and women who would be willing to stand upon your word and to share it in truth and honesty with others. So Lord, we pray for that. We pray for an increase of that. And so Lord, we thank you this morning. And um, we just ask for your hand to be upon us. I pray that you bless your people, that you bless us as your bride this week, Lord. We just give this week to you. We ask that you'd meet us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.